We're this morning in John chapter 9, talking about the dangers of a cultural religion. Picking up where we left off last week, I'm going to read verses 8 to 29. Hear then the word of God. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Now, verses 1 to 7 is the story of Jesus healing the blind man by making uh, mud out of his spit and wiping it on his eyes, and he goes and is healed. With that background, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No. But he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Well, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made some mud, and he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And I went, and I washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and he opened the man's eyes. And so the Pharisees again said to him, how ha- asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight, and they asked them, is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time... They called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, and we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The Word of God. I'm going to end it there. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your Word this morning. And we will long for you to speak to us. I pray that you might show us ways in which we have embraced cultural religion, ways in which we have lost sight of your word and your truth and your commands, the things that are really important to you. Father, help us to be captured again with a heart to serve you and your kingdom more than anything else. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
there are a lot of sermons in this passage, and I'm going to come back to uh, some of this stuff next time. I'll probably work through some of the things in this passage again, but um, you'll also see if you look at your notes that your notes are going to be a little bit different than the uh, first slides on here. I've put them... uh, uh, I've taken out the first... If you look at the first one in your notes out there, sorry, the technology, we're still working out the bugs. If you look at your notes, the first point is an excursus on spit mud. Uh, I don't know if you know what an excursus is, but it's a rabbit trail. Uh, and, and I still intend maybe to do that. That might be next week or the week after a sermon where we come back and do an, a, a little discussion on spit mud. But uh, for today, I took that out and moved into, it just was too much stuff to try to do at once. And I want to walk through the dangers of cultural religion and this investigation that takes place. Because it really is fascinating, this investigation of Jesus after he performs this miracle. You know, he opens the, the eyes of a man born blind and we're told in Verse 32, we didn't get that far, but at one point the man says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind man. All right, you read the Old Testament and you don't see any accounts of the blind receiving their sight. There's no cultural references. There's no, this, this is a new thing. This is something totally radical. There have been miracles, but, but not this. A man born blind, given sight. And so this event is, is, is causing a bit of a stir Everyone's trying to figure out what happened. You got a blind man, and he's seeing. What are we going to do with this? It's truly remarkable. So they investigate this thing, and even as I read it, I, I have this thing I read to my kids so much when they were young that I can't help putting the, the voices in or the inflections. But when I hear the irony in the passage, and when you hear these things, you can, it's almost palpable, the comic relief in this investigation. That goes on. You know, they call the neighbors, come to the guy in verses 8 through 12. You know, in verse 8, they're, they're like, is this the blind beggar that we all know and love? You know, is this the guy who used to sit in his special place down by the thing and would take alms from us? Is this the guy? In verse 9, they go on and some are saying, yeah, that's the guy. Other guys are saying, no, it's not the guy. It looks like the guy, but it's not the guy. It's a different guy. You know, it can't be the guy, right? So it's, it's another guy. Verse 10, it's the guy who won't let it drop. He's like, it's me, you guys. No, no, it's me. I'm trying to tell you. The guy's bursting with sight, and he gives a simple account. Verse 11, right? He just kind of lays out. I was doing minding my own business, and Jesus, man, Jesus came along. He spit in the mud, made a little mud. He wiped it on my eyes. He told me to go wash. I went and washed, and, and I could see. Well, I want to know where he is. Well, where is this guy? Who opened the eyes of a blind man? He doesn't know. And so they go to the Pharisees. You know, stage, you know, act two. You know, enter Pharisees, right? The wise and religious rulers of the day. The, uh, the righteous ones who would know if there was a guy, you know, a prophet healing people, then they would know, right? Let's go to the Pharisees because they can set this whole thing straight. So in verse 15, they call the guy in and they put the guy to the question. The guy answers with the same mud story, even kind of simplifies it down. You know, Jesus made mud, he put it on my eyes, and I washed it, now I see. And this whole thing causes a division. He tells a little tiny story. And it causes division. Because what some of them are hearing, some of them are hearing a story of a miracle. Others of them are hearing crime, criminal. The law has been broken. 
And that's all they hear. That's all they see. Jesus causes this division of among them. Some of them said, this guy has got to be a sinner. He's a lawbreaker. Some of them are saying, well, how can that be? He's healing blind men. Who gets such power from God? And they look for some other explanation. Jesus causes this kind of division today. Right? It's the same kind of thing. There's belief and unbelief. You know, there are those who, who say he must be who he says he is. He must be the prophet. He must be the Messiah. He must be, and as we reach the end of the passage probably next week, he must be the Son of Man, the Messiah. And then there are others who are rooting around, looking around for some other explanation. Right? There must be some other explanation. I bet this guy wasn't even blind to begin with. This is, not, this is a hoax. Right? So they call the parents in. Verses 18 to 23. We'll get to the bottom of it. Did a miracle really occur? We've got to get to my witnesses. So in 19 to 20, the parents bear witness. This is our son, and he was blind. And he is seeing. But he said, that's basically, don't ask us. It's all you're going to get. Verse 21, they said, it's all you're going to get from us. Right? We don't know what happened. We don't know who did this. Don't ask us. Ask him. He's a big boy. He can speak for himself. Not interested. And the whole reason is in verse 22, we're told they're afraid of the Pharisees. They don't want to get caught in the witch hunt. They don't want to be excommunicated by making value statements or aligning themselves with the healer or explaining. They just said, all we can tell you is, yes, it's our son. Do with him and and handle this however you want. And interesting, the parents tell him, you know, he's a big boy. Talk to him. And they take her, their advice. They call the son back in again and have another conversation, which is kind of funny in the whole thing. They ask him again, and he's like, I've already told you, you know, and you didn't listen to me the first time. Why do you want me to say it again? Do you want to be his disciples? Which obviously infuriates them, and they kick him out. Verse 24 of chapter 9. So the second time they called the man in who said that he had been blind and said to him, give glory to God because we know this man is a sinner. Right? When they call him back, they demand basically that he change his story. Right? Change your story. Give glory to God, not to Jesus. Because Jesus is a sinner and the glory belongs to God. Right? Change your story change your orientation and how you're looking at this. And you have to say when you read that, at least I don't know, sometimes it feels like blasphemy to read the verse. They say, you know, Jesus is a sinner. Jesus has done wrong. He's broken the laws of God. You know, he is not righteous. Why would they say such a thing? You know, they throw in verse 14. The the writers don't waste words, and when they put things in, it usually is to pull out. In verse 14, it says, Now, just as a, you know, word of commentary, commentary, it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. Just so you know what's going on. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus opened the man's eyes. Right? So in verse 16, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Right? Their argument is, that in healing the man on the Sabbath, Jesus broke God's law. And there are several of them. I was reading into this and trying to figure out what exactly 
why it is that they would see this as breaking the Sabbath. And some of the writers came down with their, as many as three reasons why this was breaking the Sabbath. One of them was that you were not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. That you could, even if somebody was deathly ill, you were allowed to do enough for them to keep them from dying, but you couldn't actually improve their condition on the Sabbath because that would be work. That would be to produce something. So you, were, you weren't allowed to actually heal people on the Sabbath. And you're just talking about regular medicine, what it was in those days. Um, but even just in re- regular practice of medicine, you were, you were only allowed to preserve life but not to heal. The second thing is, and in those days, spit actually in, uh, was considered to have some healing properties. And so in the Torah, at least if the writer I was reading is telling the truth, in the Torah it actually forbids the applying of spit to people and to their eyes because it was, it was an act of an attempt to heal. So actually the applying of spit to the eyes was forbidden in the Torah. And third, of course, he had to mix the spit and the dirt and make mud, which would be work on the Sabbath. So in all these different ways, they're thinking, they, they didn't even have to have a discussion. I mean, these guys are right off the bat. He did what? He made, he made spit mud and he put it on your eyes? You know, raise the guard. Everybody rise up. We've got to get this guy is definitely crossed the line today. According to their interpretation, Jesus is working on the Sabbath. He's not keeping the Sabbath. And once again, the Pharisees are missing the forest for the trees. The miracle is viewed as a crime. They can't see what God is doing. The really astounding thing as I read the passage is that the Pharisees are absolutely convinced that they are holier than Jesus. They are absolutely convinced that they are more righteous than Jesus and that they would stand in judgment over Him. They are convinced that they are better law keepers than Jesus. I mean, that's what comes across in these encounters with Jesus again and again. You know, they're righteous, he's a sinner. Isn't it an amazing stance from what we know of Christ that this is possible? The light of the world, just a few verses before Jesus says, well, I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. The light of the world is literally shining in front of them. The kingdom of God is breaking in in its power and pushing back the curse and, and healing the blind and the lame and the deaf and is changing things in ways that they have not been touched and changed since the very creation of the world. The power and the glory of God is manifest in front of them. And they're arguing about the evil of making mud on the Sabbath. And they look down on Jesus, the King, and judge Him as a lawbreaker. They declare the whole episode something of a, of a mud gate. Right? It's a scandal that Jesus is doing these things. The Sabbath prohibits work. It calls God's people to a sanctified rest. The Sabbath was a good law. It was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it was serious. There were real issues involved in keeping the Sabbath as God's covenantal people. And there were things that were clearly stated in the law that we should not do. You should not make a fire or cook. You should not carry burdens. Uh, you should rest from your normal 
daily labors. And it was serious. The, uh, it was a capital crime to break the Sabbath. So there is a seriousness in here, but what happens is when only certain things are, are stated and a principle is given like this, the Sabbath is given to man to rest, that we, we, are, we need more to go on. We need someone to um, tell us what constitutes work. I mean, that's what the Pharisees were about. They're like, Let's take this thing seriously. We don't want to break the Sabbath. It's serious to break the Sabbath. And so here's what we need to do to make sure that we don't. Here's what constitutes work. We need guidelines and lists and rules, and that's what they did. Began to lay out, here's what, it, here's what it looks like. They logically applied the principles of the Sabbath to every area of life, and they, and they made up lists. And a lot of these are contained in the Torah. The Torah is extra-biblical uh, teachings on the meaning and interpretation of the Scripture with all of its lists and, and outpouring. And it was generally held in Jesus alongside the Bible is authoritative. That not only what was actually in the scripture, but what was in the teaching of the church. Sounds familiar in some ways. Uh, was held as authoritative. And so they've got this list of stuff. You know, you can't cut your fingernails. You can't pluck hairs. You can't put anything in your pockets because then you'd be carrying it and that's carrying a burden. You know, all these things that you couldn't do. The man's life was not in danger, like the blind man's life was not in danger. He was, been, he was born blind, so, you know, nothing is going to change till tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> but it was forbidden to do it, forbidden to make mud, forget, for, forbidden to heal him. But the problem with this is the, that those rules that, three, you know, that I gave you that Jesus is breaking, they're all logical extensions of the law. None of them are specifically prohibited in the law on the Sabbath. None of them are specifically told. They're all logical extensions. You know, we take the principle and we, here are the ways that this looks like. And so Jesus doesn't actually break a law. What he breaks is their traditions. What he breaks is their traditional interpretation and application of that text as they have written it down and recorded it. The Pharisees are so wrapped up in their logical extensions, they are confident that They can judge Jesus by them. No one is more concerned about righteousness than Jesus is. And that's the funny thing in the text. It's a funny thing in the whole encounters with them. There's nobody who is more concerned about biblical righteousness and keeping the commands of God than Jesus is. He stands before them as as the only man who ever actually does keep. God's commands fully and completely to love the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and to live out as a man born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law by fulfilling all the law and righteousness that one not, not one jot or tittle will pass away until it's all fulfilled in his own person and in his own life and in his own death. Jesus loves the law. Jesus fulfills the law. He honors God by keeping the law in all righteousness. But when it came to the Pharisees' traditions and rules, Jesus was something of an iconoclast. You know that word? Iconoclast is a reformer. Someone who who deliberately confronts icons, images, things that are held up as as right. And and, and a, a reformer comes along and says, no, they're not. 
Jesus steps into these guys' lives as something of a reformer. You know, in, in our respect, you know, the reformers in the Reformation, we would call them reformers, and the, the official church and the institution would call them rebels. Right? And it's all in your perspective. So they see Jesus as a rebel, but Jesus is a reformer. He spits and he makes mud and he wipes it on the eyes, an action that is specifically forbidden in the Torah and in their books of rules. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows what he's doing. He doesn't even have to be God to know what he's doing on the Sabbath. He could have waited to the next day. He could have done it another way. He's healed several blind men before he's done. Sometimes he touched them. Sometimes it was with a word, go and be healed. He didn't, have, he didn't need mud. He didn't need to use his spit. But on the Sabbath, he spits and heals. He could have avoided the trouble, but he challenges the church saying in Sunday school and having this whole discussion because my view is that the church is the true Israel in the New Testament. And true Israel is the church in the Old Testament. And that Jesus comes to His church, to His Old Testament church. Israel, the church, is one continuous people of God through time. A people of faith, saved by faith and only by faith. And Jesus comes to His church to the traditions that are embraced in the church of his day that actually put them at odds with him. Isn't it interesting? I mean, this is what Jesus is, 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 he's walked into the church. Can you imagine him walking in here? And what are the traditions? In some ways may even put us at odds with him. Things that we have embraced because they're resisting the gospel and quenching the spirit. They're full of blindness and deafness. They can't hear him. They can't respond to him. They are, because why? Because they are so bound, they are wound so tight with their traditions and their logical extensions and their, their religious culture that they literally can't see Jesus. The forest for the trees. Jesus, on many occasions, confronts their traditions. He challenges the religious culture that has been created. And these guys had created quite a religious culture. The traditions of men. And I just back up because you're going to think I'm going to, I kind of, even with writing this, I said, they're going to think I'm coming after something. You know, I'm not, I'm not coming after anything. I don't, I don't have a, a dog in this fight today in that sense. Um, but I do, I, 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 when I read these things, I, it does capture, this is where I feel God has taken me, and what I believe very strongly is that there is so much in the life of the church that is just plain traditional. You know, and it may not even be the traditions of our time and culture, it's just the traditions of the last century or the last century and the culture of that, the last century. There's so much in the traditions of men that can be fine, that can be good. You know, traditions can enrich and deepen our faith. They, they, they can serve us and the kingdom and the gospel, and they can connect us to the past and to the church across time, and they can give us so much to celebrate and to embrace. But I fundamentally believe that many of them have an expiration date. They don't always serve the kingdom and the gospel. And they were just things that we added in that were helpful to us and served us. You know, I'll, I'll say, you know, one thing. We don't, do, 
we don't do church on Wednesday nights anymore. And you would, you know, for it took 10 years to stop doing church. On, when I came here, the previous pastor every year was doing the work to try to end church on Wednesday night and to do something else with our small groups and to start some other ministries and free people up to, you know, because all of our time, you're only going to give so much time to the church. And if you come to Sunday school, Sunday, church, Sunday night, Wednesday night, there's very little left for other things. And one of the goals was to eliminate Wednesday night so that you would have freedom to come on Monday night and, and, and teach ESL or come on Tuesday, Thursday and tutor kids or get involved in other aspects of the ministry and not feel that you're overextended. And, but you would have thought that, it, that you could find chapter verse that you do, you know, the Wednesday night thing is, is of God. The midweek service, which appeared in the 18th century, 19th century, maybe even the 20th century. It's not old. It's a tradition. It serves a church for a period of time. And at some point, does it still serve the question? God's people, though, confuse man-made rules and traditions with what actually pleases God. And there is a lot in evangelical church culture that is just the accumulated culture of centuries of doing church. Some of it is medieval. Some of it is the 18th century and the revivalistic, uh, evangelistic uh, era, era stuff. Some of it is, goes back further and some of it is newer. But a great deal of it is simply the cu- culture. In the PCA, it's not uncommon to confuse 16th century Geneva with the ways of God. Right? The way to do anything that's to be done. That they got it all right. doesn't matter that it was 400 years ago. That's how you do it. Right? There, there is, and there is this tendency to sanctify our logical extensions and our ways of doing things. And then they become personal. And we, you know, they, they become church for me in such a way that it's hard to let go of and to change well, let me just give you some things. I, I mean, because I see that that's what Jesus is, walks into these guys' world. And he, and he doesn't just notice and say something. He goes after some of their traditions and say, these things are getting in the way of what God is doing. Let me give you some dangers of cultural religion. It often goes beyond what the Bible requires. It goes beyond what God requires. It's, it's extra biblical. It's logical extensions of things that we think will, will work and, and will help us to do it. And so they, they become part of our culture, which can be fine at that time as it serves us. But it goes beyond what the Bible and God require and become established. Right? And then we end up abstaining from things that Jesus didn't abstain from. We end up requiring things and expecting things of other Christians, you know, as we enter into a church culture. And don't tell me anybody walks in here and gets to know us that there isn't a culture, you know, to conform to. Expectations that we have of each other and, and what we think ought to be done in different ways. And so the real danger then is becoming more religious than God. Right? To become more righteous than Jesus. Right? I abstain from more things than Jesus did. You know, I, I, I withhold things from myself and I, and I live a more austere life than Jesus did. You know, or I require things of myself that Jesus didn't even require. Or of others in particular. 
And what happens, and this is what the Pharisees used the Bible to construct a religious culture in which they were more obedient than Jesus. Isn't that what, exactly what happened? They used the Bible to create a culture. The world sees and rejects very often then what they often encounter in the church is there is as the world culture bumps into the church culture and we're trying to preach the gospel we're trying to show them Jesus but very often what they encounter in the church they they reject and walk away from and i'm convinced that very often what they reject and walk away from isn't biblical christianity and isn't Jesus what is some of the church culture that we still cling to they already see christianity as a bunch of rules now you add on layers of cultural expectation and, and practice that become an unnecessary barrier to people seeing Christ and the call that he makes. Fourth danger is that it then can produce unnecessary and oppressive burdens on God's people. The spoken and unspoken expectations that we put on people. It, it, it's almost you know, axiomatic and humorous about the things that Christians do in private so that other Christians don't know. It's not that they will offend God because they're convinced they're doing what is in their freedom as Christians. You just can't let any of the other Christians know that they feel free in those areas because of the expectations and sense of what people ought to do and not to do that we place upon each other. The fifth then is we are tempted to judge people by our personal and cultural logical extensions and when I judge you just like they judge Jesus by their cultural set of extensions they could feel superior they could feel like they were better than Jesus that they were more obedient than Jesus and we kind of make our own little set and either with the world or with each other look around and look down um, because we are that obedient our view of sin and righteousness can become shallow like it did with the Pharisees. They were concerned with a set list of outward issues. Jesus actually says to his disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That their righteousness actually blinded them to the righteousness that God desires for us. When cultural religion becomes more important, that it begins to to eclipse the things that are really important. I got several more on there, but let me just put out my sort of feeling and where I'm going with this. Is that there, there are things that are so important to the church. As you read the scripture, what was Jesus about? What was Jesus concerned with? What are the apostles concerned with? And sometimes as we spend our time in, in, in meetings and small groups and talking about stuff, we end up, we end up so focused on the wrong things. That seems so important. And the things that are really important, sometimes I, you get in these, these things and you're just like, you know, really? This is what, I mean, this is what we're giving our time? This is where we're going to camp? You know, this is where we're going to plant our flag? This is the hill we're going to die on? This is, this is where we're going to do this? When I'm, I'm thinking, you know, nobody seems to be concerned, you know, about the depth of the prayer life of the church, you know, or is there anybody up in arms or concerned about the, the advancement of the gospel and our participation in the kingdom? Are there people who are concerned about whether we're reading and knowing and loving God's word and meditating on it and being shaped by it? Are there people that are concerned about their own depth of their walk with 
with Christ or our own, you know, are we concerned about whether we're surrendered and consecrated to Christ in, in, in worship and in service and living our lives, the things that are at the core of what it means to know, love, and serve and walk with Jesus? And sometimes the danger of cultural religion is, is that it distracts us from the things that are really important. I love tradition. We strive to be blended and to incorporate tradition into everything that we do. But at the same time, I'm with Jesus as an iconoclast sometimes. You may have encountered me that way into saying, you know, there's some stuff that are just not helping. <laughs> we love them. We're used to them. They're comfortable. But they're not in the mission. Semper formanda. Let us always be reforming. Let us examine ourselves and, and be concerned about the right things. Let us be the Berean Christians who were no more noble than those in Thessalonica who searched the Scriptures daily to see what is true, what is right, what is important, what is biblical, what is godly. Pray with me. Father in heaven, there is so much in our lives that shape us as American, 21st century, evangelical, reformed Christians. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are more concerned about the things that concern your heart. Father, capture us and protect us as a church that we would indeed surrender ourselves to you and to biblical righteousness. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.